Retirement and Women's History. Available for weddings and events at RossiterHouseMuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, John Ringling made Sarasota the winter home of his circus, and his former home is now part of a cultural complex. Bringing the circus here in 1927 changed the entire tenor of what the city is, and we still feel that today. We'll discuss Bahamians in southeast Florida before Miami, most Bahamians had strong seafaring and amateur boat building skills. They easily navigated the waters between the islands and the peninsula. And we'll visit the La Villa community in Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I think really early on in the show, the brothers all had to do, you know, it was sort of all hands on deck and they were really putting the show together themselves. It was a scrappy little show. Their animal uh, offerings were, you know, a dog and, and nothing much more exotic than that. Um, but what we see happening is they really start to um, develop a strong sense of how to manage and administer the circus rather than just be the performers themselves. Uh, there's a, a famous quote they would say, we divided the job but we stuck together. Um, and I think that was really the key to their success. Or competitors referred to them as a many-headed hydra. Um, so I think that ability that they each sort of specialized, they had a niche talent, um, and for John it became uh, what's known as the advanced man position. So he would travel out in front of the circus and arrange logistics. So he really had a mind for, for logistics, for arranging everything. He had to make sure that he found a site that would be appropriate for the circus. He had to pick a town and the, and the right time when the harvest had just come in or whatever it was so that people had money to spend on the circus. He had to arrange for all the provisions and the food. Um, so really, he, he got to know America really well through that role, um, but he was really uh, instrumental in scheduling the circus and making sure everything fell into place. By 1889, the Ringling Brothers Circus was traveling across the country by train. Eventually, they owned their own caravan with more than 100 rail cars. John Ringling's personal rail car is on display in the Circus Museum. So we have the Wisconsin here at the Ringling, uh, and that was John and Mabel's private rail car, one of a couple that they had. Um, and it's the Wisconsin, you know, after the, the brothers who had spent a lot of time in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Um, and it really is just sort of a testament to the life they had achieved for themselves, John and Mabel, at that point. It's incredibly luxurious. Um, and it's, it's beautifully decorated, it's been beautifully restored. Um, so we see them traveling with the circus in, in the height of luxury in probably stark contrast to the performers who were all crowded in. I mean, some of them had you know more ample space, but John and Mabel were really living the high life when they were traveling with the circus. Karen Bell is Outreach Education Manager for the Circus Arts Conservatory. For 30 years, Bell was a featured clown with the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. She has fond memories of traveling on the company train with performers from around the world. Back in the 40s, when there were about a thousand people working for Ringling, they had two train cars. And the first train car would have all the things that were necessary to get the tent up and moving. So they would have the kitchen, because of course the circus lives on their stomach. Uh, all the draft horses and draft animals, the work animals, and the workers. And then they would pack up and leave. And then the second train would have all the performers and the tent. So as the show was on, they would actually be loading the train. And this is the same to today. So when the audience members would leave the tent after a performance, it would just be the big top and nothing else. 
going to be just like vanished. <laughs> and the next morning, it was all gone. It was like the circus was never there. In 1907, the Ringling Brothers bought the Barnum & Bailey Circus, but they didn't merge operations until the winter of 1918-1919. Jennifer Lemmer-Posey is circus curator at the Ringling Museum. The Ringling Brothers were so ambitious, and they watched for an opening to grow their business. So after James Bailey took the Barnum & Bailey Circus to Europe for five years, the brothers had, had grown their routes, and when Bailey came back, he passed away a couple of years later, and the Ringling Brothers bought the show, and, and they did travel those two units separately for a number of years because that meant that much more ground that they could cover. So the Barnum and Bailey title had this uh, weight on the, the eastern seaboard. People knew that title, and that was what they wanted to see when they saw Circus. And out in the Midwest, it was the Ringling Show. And so it was really successful for them to keep the two shows running. But as the century progressed, you get to the beginnings of World War I, and you also see the death of some of the older Ringling brothers. And so at that point, the, the existing brothers had to, to really evaluate how they could keep the business going and keep their very close handle on, on how it was maintained. They were so hands-on that when they were down to two or three brothers, they needed to combine the shows. And so they did that for the 1919 season. Uh, you see the first combination of this mega circus that opens in Madison Square Gardens. The circus made John Ringling an incredibly wealthy man, but he also had other business interests. Laura Stiefel Moore. And then it's the, the land boom in Florida of the 1920s where he really realizes that Sarasota is this sort of gem to be developed. And he decides he's going to fashion himself a capitalist, and that was a term that he liked to use to refer to himself rather than a circus impresario um, as the years go by. At that point, he really gets into real estate and, and develops Sarasota. He developed the Keys, um, Longboat, what is today Longboat Keys, St. Armand's, Bird Key, um, and, and really tried to develop the entire town. John and Mabel Ringling were what might be called soulmates today. They married in 1905 and became interested in Sarasota by 1911. In 1926, they completed construction of their ornate mansion called Katazan, or House of John. It was modeled after Venetian palaces. Mabel Ringling was particularly involved in the design of the spectacular home. Jennifer Lemmer Posey. The Katazan is actually listed on the blueprint documents as the residence of Mrs. John Ringling. So we see very much how invested Mabel was in creating a home for herself and, and her husband. She was actively involved in speaking with the architect Dwight James Baum about palazzos she'd seen in Venice and, and these other ideas that would help create this amazing uh, mansion here on Sarasota Bay. It, it, echoes historic references of Venetian architecture, but there are many personal touches. A lot of the murals and the artwork that you see within the house really speak to Mabel's personality and, and her love of entertaining. There are wonderful grand spaces to invite people into. Laura Stiefel Moore. It would be great to go back and, and have a party with John and Mabel in the 1920s at the Katazan, absolutely. Uh, you, you can read newspaper reports from, from the late 20s. Uh, some accounts say, you know, there's a party of 300. I've read up to 475 people would be at any kind of given party. They had a beautiful organ installed in the house so they could have concerts with, with the organ. Of course, they would hire live musicians as well. There would be dancing. There's a beautiful ballroom in that space. And they've got a huge marble terrace outside right on the water so it could really accommodate a lot of people. Um, so they would have the big parties, the lavish parties. Um, and then maybe some more casual daytime affairs. Mabel loved bridge, so she would have bridge tournaments and luncheons um, for her, her circle of women friends. 
Um, and then just entertaining on a small scale, if you were lucky enough to be a guest at the house, they had a 125 foot yacht, so you could go out cruising on the bay. Um, John might take you over to look at some of his real estate that he was uh, developing. Uh, they had clay tennis courts. You know, you could, there was beachfront along the way so you could swim. They had a, a saltwater swimming pool. Uh, so really there was no shortage of, of entertainment and things to do at the Katazan. The year after Katazan was built, John Ringling made Sarasota the official winter home of the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus. Bringing the circus here in 1927 changed the entire tenor of what the city is, and we still feel that today. Because not only did it turn Sarasota into even more of a tourist destination than it had already been, but we have circus families now who would come down for winter quarters, but then put roots down here. So there's no shortage of, of circus performers still today from these families who had worked in the Ringling Brothers. Um, Barnum and Bailey Circus. And so that legacy of circus is very much alive. But I think too, you still can drive down some roads and see all of these motels that had to spring up because all of a sudden we'd have thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming over the winter to come to winter quarters of the circus and experience this major tourist destination. So I think from that very early period, Sarasota is already sort of navigating how do we accommodate these tourists? What does it mean to be a tourist friendly town? Um, so in, in both of those senses, I think it really impacted the city as it is today. The Ringling's wealth allowed them to indulge their love of travel and collecting art. Laura Stiefel Moore. John had dabbled in art collecting um, from basically the turn of the century, about 1910, 1915. He starts making art purchases, but without any real direction or purpose. Um, and it's not till 1925 that he decides he's going to build an art museum right here uh, on the property where the museum still is today and where they were living. So he sets his mind to this massive undertaking and within six years he had acquired basically the bulk of, of the collection that we have today. Uh, right away he engages an architect to, to build uh, to work on designs and he's able to you know through his travels he's going to Europe very frequently to look for new circus acts but while he's there he's also able to purchase a lot of, of artwork and ship it back to, to America. He and Mabel also frequented auctions especially in New York um, but in, in the Northeast. A lot of the Gilded Age mansions that had been um, you know prominent several decades earlier were being torn down to make way for commercial buildings and skyscrapers and all of the contents of those buildings were being sold at auction. So he gets a lot of fine art that way as well but also furnishings for the Katazan, um, beautiful furniture, tapestries and things like that. When John Ringling died in 1936 he left his museum and all of its contents to the state of Florida. In 2017, the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus ceased operation, but Ringling's legacy lives on in a variety of ways. After three decades as a professional clown, Karen Bell is now Outreach Education Manager for the Circus Arts Conservatory. The Circus Arts Conservatory is pretty much an umbrella of different programs. We have our Circus Sarasota performances in the winter. We have our Sailor Circus Academy, which is our after-school youth program. We have our humor therapy program, which works with seniors in skilled nursing facilities, and our education program, where we teach youth about physics through the eyes of the circus. The John and Mabel Ringling Museum of Art Complex in Sarasota includes a 21-gallery museum, the Katazan Mansion, the Oslo Theater, and the Circus Museum. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived editions of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more.
That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Miami is recognized as an international city that dominates all else in Southeast Florida. Was there interaction between Southeast Florida and the surrounding islands before Miami? Devin Lee, who at the time of the publication of his article was a Ph.D. student at the University of California, Davis, wondered the same thing. Looking at the historiography of Miami, he noticed that Miami's urban history rested on what he termed the triumphalist narrative of overcoming nature to create a multicultural environment. Because of this focus, he noted, relationships connecting Florida and nearby islands have been marginalized, and the exceptional reputation of Florida as the only East Coast American state that was a Spanish-language colony in the early modern era is used as a reason for American scholars to overlook its inclusion in the national narrative. When Bahamians are included in the history of South Florida, it is generally as a story of homesteading, ignoring or obscuring the southward-looking history of the region until forced to account for the Cuban and Haitian migrations in the late 20th century. Lee proposed to fill that historical gap. Connie, this sounds as if his scholarship could be an important contribution to our understanding of regional cultural exchanges. I think so. In his article Between Swamp and Sea, Lee begins with the quote from Helen Muir, who in her 1953 book, Miami, USA, wrote that, quote, Until 1896, Florida might as well have been an island joined to the Bahamas by sailboat and custom, separated from the rest of the state by miles and miles of swamps and rivers. The land was a mere backdrop for the action that took place on the water, end quote. This quote provided the inspiration to look to the sea for his research. And like Muir, Lee understands that pre-capitalist South Florida was far more connected to the Bahamas than later history would be. Indeed, the interactions between the islands and the lower peninsula satisfied a number of pre-capitalist needs, that supplemented Bahamian incomes without requiring large capital investments, what he describes as a hybrid practice of communal and private property activities, were enmeshed in markets but sought a modest competence rather than the perpetual accumulation of capital. Bahamians, then, interacted with the environment of the peninsula in a way that would be familiar to economies elsewhere in which individual production and economic competence was dependent on access to the commons. In other economies, that might mean access to common pasturage for sheep or cattle, rights to wood from commonly held forests, or fish from streams that flowed in their area. How did the Bahamians access these commons, and what did they harvest? Bahamians traveled between the islands and the peninsula to engage in the collection of turtles and eggs, sources of protein, and salt and sponges, and to harvest timber and salvage shipwrecks. These activities positioned them 
in an intermediate stage between the subsistence activities of indigenous people of earlier periods and the later capitalist-driven Americans who descended on South Florida on Flagler's trains. The colonial history of the Bahamas was one of successive claims by Europeans. The Spanish, whose flag Columbus planted in 1492, English settlers from Bermuda in 1648, and in 1670, the Bahamas were granted to the Lord's proprietary government of the Carolinas. Following the American revolutions, the islands became a haven for loyalist families and their slaves. Rosalind Howard notes that the Bahamas as a haven continued after the American acquisition of Florida from the Spanish. Blacks living in the maroon community of Angola fled to the Bahamas to avoid being re-enslaved under American law. The history of the islands had created a large Creole community of sailors and small merchants who operated family businesses in remote locations using modes of inshore vessels. Most Bahamians had strong seafaring and amateur boat-building skills. They easily navigated the waters between the islands and the peninsula. The soils of the Bahamas were unsuitable for the most profitable of New World cash crops, and the people of the islands were forced to find new and inventive ways to engage with the markets. In 1747, Mark Cattesby observed that most of the trees of the islands had disappeared, and Bahamian sailors were crossing the Gulf Stream to cut mahogany that grew in the Florida Keys and southeast Florida. Cattesby also reports the role of turtles and their eggs in the Bahamian economy. He stated that green turtles were captured and sold as rare delicacies in the Carolinas and marketed elsewhere across the Circum-Caribbean. The third industry was wrecking, cannibalizing wrecked ships for their essential parts, as well as robbing them of their cargo. The rapid northward currents of the Gulf Stream that flowed between the peninsula and Florida were ideal for travel between the Caribbean and Europe. But the tropical storms and jagged Florida reefs guaranteed that vessels would periodically be cast astray by hurricanes and smashed upon the exposed rocks. Lee concludes his article with a series of questions that speculate on the uses of the land and its resources by these early modern visitors to the peninsula, in comparison to boosters and speculators of the late 19th and 20th century. Would the environment have been better served as an area of periodic resource extraction than as a region of permanent urban development, he asks? Would common land still exist, and perhaps more importantly, would our growing knowledge of the environment be enough to make them sustainable? Discussions about the social implications of land enclosure lend themselves to the seemingly eternal issue of whether pre-industrial groups possess mentalities that prevented them from over-exploiting their natural environment, even at their own expense. Lee has no firm answer, but he observes that not all people looked beyond the tangled canopy of the mangroves and dreamed of dredging the swamps. Not all people stepped upon the Atlantic coastal ridge and fantasized about driving the final spike on a railroad. Some visitors were content to take what they needed, and perhaps a little more, while watching the forested coast of the peninsula from the cool shade of a copperwood tree or enjoying the calm waters of the bay. And much of the Caribbean islands are still well-preserved and beautiful. Thanks, Connie. 
You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. La Villa is an historic African-American community in Jacksonville. Holly Baker has more. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The historic African-American community in Jacksonville called La Villa has been included on their annual 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about the neighborhood of La Villa. The name comes from a plantation that was established in the uh, early 19th century. That plantation was a Sea Island cotton plantation. And so La Villa is tied into this, this Gullah Geechee culture and inherited as well as within the corridor for the first half of the 19th century enslaved labor was used to cultivate crops here. During the Civil War, it is where the Union actually camped out during the occupation of Jacksonville. The Union occupied Jacksonville four times during the Civil War, and a few of those times uh, it was occupied with U.S. colored troops. Many of those troops were from area plantations as well as other locations on the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor. So following the war, La Villa becomes established as the first suburb of Jacksonville. It's incorporated as its own city in 1866. Many of those USCT veterans stay there. The nearby Jacksonville Terminal Railroad Station, built in 1919, was the largest railroad station in the southeast at the time. The traffic that flowed in and out of the train station helped foster a musical and cultural relationship between La Villa and other artistically vibrant cities particularly New Orleans. Because of the musical influences that passed through town, La Villa soon became known as a hub for ragtime, jazz, and blues. Because La Villa had a large black population and New Orleans had a large black population, they became cultural exchange partners. Early years, the formative years of ragtime, jazz, and blues, La Villa becomes this cultural destination, this hub. In addition, it has a large red light district called The Line. 60 bordellos within a four-block stretch. In those bordellos, you have parlors or uh, places for entertainment on the bottom floor. And many of the madams use African-American uh, entertainers and musicians to play in the bordellos. So jazz and blues is closely linked to the line as well as Storyville in New Orleans, which is its uh, Louisiana counterpart, if you want to call it that. Out of that comes a gentleman by the name of Pat Henry Chappelle, he becomes known as the Black P.T. Barnum of his day. He's the largest employer of African-American musicians and entertainers through what his company he established, which is the uh, Rabbit's Foot Company, which is basically a traveling entertainment show across the South. This leads to, in 1910, the first documented live performance of the blues in America takes place in La Villa at what was then the uh, Colored Air Dome, which is adjacent to the Globe Theater, a building that still exists today. Also at that particular time, some early names that were associated with the Rabbit's Foot Company that we now know as uh, instrumental in the formative years of jazz and blues include uh, Ma Rainey, who was a 19-year-old named Gertrude Pritchard when she first joined the Rabbit's Foot Company. She becomes known as the mother of blues. Jelly Roll Morton is another name that pops up. He's uh, one of the fathers of jazz, and it's because he used to write his music down, which a lot of people didn't do back then. 
In the early 20th century, there was a close tie between the Harlem Renaissance and La Villa's artistic movement. Many of the same musicians and artists contributed to the cultural scenes in both cities. A lot of people tend to say La Villa is the Harlem of the South. I like to say Harlem is La Villa of the North because the things that took place in La Villa happened before the migration. The migration pushes that into Harlem. Those acts and that artistic scene, that cultural scene takes place on an international level. And now you get this Harlem Renaissance. Some figures that are tied to La Villa's history that were significant leaders of the Harlem Renaissance include James Weldon Johnson and his brother John Roseman Johnson, who both in 1900 in La Villa wrote what became known as the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. We have Augusta Salvage, Zora Neale Hurston, who's tied in Eatonville, but actually spent many of her teenage years in the La Villa in Jacksonville area. So La Villa really becomes this um, cultural epicenter one of the largest historic African-American communities in the state. And because 80% of the rail traffic in and out of Florida came through La Villa, it actually feeds growth and population to African-American communities all across the state. So Overtown in Miami, for example, or the Deuces in St. Petersburg, Florida, or even Paramore in Orlando. Eatonville even had ties to La Villa. Goldsboro over in um, Sanford also had ties to La Villa through the railroad and different economic activities that were taking place. In recent decades, La Villa has been adversely affected by the construction of Interstate 95, urban renewal, and the threat of gentrification. Inclusion on the Florida Trust's 11 to Save list will help bring public awareness to the history of the neighborhood and will bring attention to the importance of preserving it. Ennis Davis. Unfortunately, you get to the 1950s, 60s, and the villa was a community that was redlined. It was a community that was repeatedly targeted for urban renewal. So portions of the neighborhood were demolished and replaced with housing projects. A large swath of the neighborhood was destroyed for the construction of Interstate 95 in the 1950s. And unfortunately, a good chunk of the neighborhood was erased via intimate domain in the 1990s as a part of a city effort to revitalize the area. With that being said, La Villa has uh, continued to live on. The residents did not go anywhere uh, once urban renewal took place. They just moved to the neighborhood next door. Neighborhoods that grew out of La Villa. And so within the community, La Villa is still a significant place. Many of the historic churches are still there. Many of the social organizations are still there. And now many of these organizations are working together to preserve what's left, but also make sure that new development that comes into the area is culturally respective of the history and, and heritage there. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the annual 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.